Good afternoon, congregation. On behalf of Council and Consist, we would like to welcome all visitors who are worshiping with us today, as well as anyone who is joining us online. It is our prayer that we may be blessed as we worship our Lord together and that he is glorified in this. To repeat the announcement of this morning, the collection will be gathered today for the Canadian Reformed World Relief Fund. And this afternoon, our pastor, Jeremy Sakestro, will be leading us in worship of our triune God. Good afternoon, congregation. What a blessing it is to gather, not just once, but even twice on this Lord's Day for worship. Our God calls us into this special time of worship with these words from Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you are able, please rise for worship. Believers, humbled by God's grace, from where does your help come? Receive his greeting, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Amen. Already since the very beginning, it was by grace. Already since the very beginning, it was through faith. This we see clearly spelled out for us in Psalm 27. David is confident in the power of God. David seeks the face of his God in faith, waiting for his grace, mercy, and love. Let's now take David's song of faith on our lips, Psalm 27, the stanzas 1, 4, and 6.
Please bow with me in prayer. O Lord, our God, we wait for you. We wait expectantly. We wait trustingly. We wait knowing that you exist, that you are powerful, that you are loving, that you are for us. You are faithful. Why would we ever be afraid? We wait for grace with open hands, knowing that you will give it. We wait for peace with open hands, knowing that you will give it. We wait for hope. We wait for joy. We wait for love. We thank you for giving us all these things and even giving us faith, the open hands needed to receive these other gifts. We thank you that our salvation is not the equation God plus me equals salvation. For if that were true, none of us would be saved. We constantly fail to do our part. We thank you that our salvation is kept in heaven with you, where it is safe and secure for all time. Please continue to bless us as we seek to live our lives of faith, knowing who you are and truly believing that you are for us. Bless what is done here this afternoon and accept our praise, poor though it is. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, in connection with our confessional reading this afternoon, please turn with me in Holy Scripture to Romans chapter 5. For those of you who were here this morning, this might feel like a bit of deja vu, but we're going to be reading different verses from Romans 5 this afternoon than we read this morning. We did read the first part of Romans 5 this morning, examining the blessings that come through the passageway of faith. And those verses are key as the background for our reading this afternoon, where we see the obedience of Christ contrasted with the disobedience of Adam. This is a connection that the Catechism makes as well, though in a different way than we might first think. Let's read Romans 5, the verses 12 through 29. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
in response to hearing of our salvation, in preparation for hearing about the importance of faith, let us now sing from Psalm 4, another psalm of David, a psalm that begins with an earnest plea for grace and ends with the psalmist falling asleep in peace, the benefit of true faith, knowing who God is and that he is for us. Let's sing Psalm 4, all three stanzas.
our regular confessional reading. We have come now to Lord's Day, chapter 7. Please turn there with me, page 523 of your book of praise. Now in Lord's Day 7, we see the natural outpouring of Lord's Day 6. There is a Savior. Now who is he for? And how do we receive his salvation? Let's read Lord's Day 7. Are all men, then, saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? No. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. What is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. What are these articles? Here follows the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic Christian church the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. After the sermon, we will sing our Amen song of hymn 45, all three stanzas. May God bless the preaching of the truths of his word. Beloved in Christ our Lord, what is faith? What is faith? This is a question that our catechism asks. It's an important question. It's a vital question. Years ago, back in Winnipeg, my minister had a few things that he liked to say. Things that he would repeat time after time after time so that they really sunk in. And one of them was this. I think it was these exact words from the pulpit. Every time that he would preach on Lord's Day 1, every time that he would preach on Lord's Day 7, and many other times, he would say these exact words. He said, if I were to call any of you up in the middle of the night and ask you to recite Lord's Day 1 or Lord's Day 7 to me, you had better be able to do it. And before I really got to know him, I wasn't sure if he was serious or not about this. Now that I do know him, I'm pretty sure that he wasn't. I was pretty sure that that this was his way of telling us that the answers to these two questions was what it all came down to. What is your only comfort in life and in death? You better have an answer. And what is true faith? You better know. But even though I was pretty sure he was joking, I, I also made sure that I memorized those two answers just in case he ever would call me. I didn't want to disappoint him. He never did call me in the middle of the night, though. 
But I was thinking about this. I was, I was thinking about Lord's Day 7 last week when, when I defined faith in the Romans sermon. I was thinking about it because I gave a different definition than our catechism has. For those of you who weren't here or, or simply forget, last week I said the following. I said, faith, you could say, is simply a set of open hands. Open hands ready to receive anything and everything from our Heavenly Father. I then went on to say how easy faith is, and then at the same time, how hard faith is. But is this really all that there is? Is faith simply a set of open hands? Surely there's more to it than that. Let's evaluate that together this afternoon. The empty hands of faith... Now, the fact that it's in the theme means that you know where I'm going to go with this. It's, it is true. Um, the empty hands of faith, filled to overflowing. We'll look at whose hands are filled, then what is the true value of the filling, and then finally, what is the true purpose of the filling? Whose hands are filled? As we heard last time in Lord's Day 6, we finally arrived. We've gone, to use the language of Romans, from wrath to redemption. As you may have noticed, and as many of you have, have told me since we've started our sermon series on Romans, the catechism, it follows the exact same roadmap. Sin, salvation, service. And we're right near the beginning of, of the salvation portion of the catechism. Our previous Lord's Day, what it, is, what it did was it introduced us to our Savior and our Mediator, a true and righteous man who is, at the same time, true God. The Savior who is revealed already in paradise, proclaimed by the patriarchs and the prophets, the mediator foreshadowed in the sacrifices and the ceremonies of the law. This Savior, we learned, is Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. There's a mediator and Savior out there. We know that he exists. We know a little more than that. We know his identity. We even know his powerful name. But the question is, how is he mine? There is a Savior, but is he my Savior? This is where our Lord's Day starts. Are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? Essentially asking the question, who is this Savior for? Is he only for the Jews? Only for God's chosen people? Were the rabbis right when they wrote that the only reason God made Gentiles was to stoke the fires of hell? That's what they wrote. It's terrifying, their hatred for everyone who wasn't Jewish. Or, on, on the other hand, is God only for Gentiles? God's chosen people, the Jews, they, they rejected their Messiah. They killed him. So then did he, in turn, reject them? Surely there's no coming back from killing the Son of God. Or the third option, is he for everyone? Every single person who's ever been born? Did Jesus Christ completely undo the curse of Adam? And that's what we seem to read in our reading in Romans 5. This is what we seem to have picked up here. When Paul says, "For Therefore, just as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. It seems that what Paul is doing is he's, is he's preaching universalism here. Every single person who sinned in Adam is saved in Christ. Now we know clearly, given the context of Romans, in the context of Scripture, that that's not true. 
And so what we can see here, and we're not going to get into it, we did that last time that we went through Lord's Day 7, um, but we see that with this, it's who, who belong to Adam. All those who belong to Adam die. All those who belong to Christ, they come alive. All those who belong to Christ are saved. So, that is the answer there. But So, are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? This is the question of our catechism. And this seems so nice. It seems so clean. After all, Jesus is called the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus Christ is the one who in the garden, when he was tempted, he resisted up to and including the point of death. Jesus, you could say, is, is the Adam that got it right. And what of our reading? Along with what we just looked up just now, when the Apostle Paul compares the first Adam to the last Adam, he is insistent that the last Adam brought more blessings than the first Adam brought a curse. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace. By the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ abounded for the many. Much more. And then, again, in verse 17, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Much more. So how can it be, then, that the answer to this question in the Catechism is no? Are all men, then, saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? No. Surely, if the blessing is much more, as Paul says, then it should be at least equal, shouldn't it? If Adam's sin brought death to every person who ever existed, and Christ Jesus brings life to some of the people who existed, how is the free gift of grace greater than the trespass? It's a good question, but before we despair and and begin to crop out portions of the catechism because they're unscriptural, let's continue reading in the catechism. Because the answer is not just a simple no. Are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? No, no. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. We can see that that's the same then. Those who belong to Adam, those who belong to Christ. But there's still an issue about the greater salvation than the damnation. Now, how are we saved? Well, it's by grace. This is true. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. Salvation is by grace. It was grace that God approached Adam and Eve after they sinned, calling out, where are you? I want to have fellowship with you again. Let's work on this together. Let's reason together, declares the Lord. This is true. It's all grace. Salvation is by grace, not because of anything that we do. For how could we do anything? We're dead in ourselves. So if it's all grace, we all agree with that. And why this discussion of faith? If it's all God... Why do we need to have something? Why do we need to do something? That seems a little un-Catholic. God's grace plus works? God does something, we do something? Or isn't that a little Arminian? God potentially saves everyone, but it's really up to us if we, in our own strength, choose him. Ultimately, whatever label we want to put on it, Roman Catholic, Arminian, anything else, 
can't we declare it to be contradictory? If it's all grace, what else can there be? If a glass is filled up with water, you're not going to keep adding more water. It's already full. It's all already been done. Yes, we are saved by Christ and by his grace alone, but we are also saved through faith. That by versus the through, that's, that's a very important distinction that we have to get right. Our salvation, salvation story, the gospel story, says that God did this wonderful, beautiful, miraculous thing. This is, this is the grace. This is what we heard last week in the afternoon service. You may remember it was the righteousness of God and then faith in God. And the righteousness of God, it was about 90% of the sermon, because that's where our focus needs to be. Faith is just those hands reaching out. That's, that's the grace. God's righteousness marvelously displayed in his grace. But then faith. Faith is where we make it our own. Faith is how we appropriate God's gifts. We don't deserve them because of our faith, but instead we receive them through faith. It's not God's grace plus our faith in equal measure. We're not Roman Catholics. It's not God's potential grace made real by our faith. We're not Arminians. For the faith, the open hands by which we receive God's gifts, that faith comes from him as well. It's grace that sent Jesus to the cross, and it's grace that opens our hands to receive him. Who is saved? Well, this is very clear. It's those who believe. Who is saved? It's those who follow the path of salvation. God says there's only one way to be saved. So walk in it. And those who reject the way of salvation, they reject salvation itself. They reject the Savior himself. They reject God and every good gift that he offers. And after a lifetime of rejecting him, God gives them exactly what they want. They get an eternity away from him. But now, what about that comparison that we read of earlier that we sort of put a pin in? How the second Adam is so much greater than the first. We still haven't solved that. This we'll deal with in our second point. What is the true value of the filling? the true value. We're we're comparing the value of the salvation to, we could say, the negative value of the damnation. I compare what happened in, in the two gardens. You might be left with a rather different conclusion than the Apostle Paul in Romans 5. That first garden, our first father and our first mother sinned. They listened to the deceitful words of the devil. Did God really say? They give in to temptation. She took some of its fruit and she ate She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And they plunged themselves and all of their descendants into darkness and death. Due to the first sin, death has come into the world. There was that physical death. Though Adam and Eve, they did not immediately physically die, that day changed everything about them as human beings. From that very day, their bodies began to decay. Joints began to ache. Cells began to deteriorate and produced the effects of aging, they became susceptible to disease. Physical death from that moment of eating the fruit was then physically built into our physical bodies. Our DNA became weak. And spiritual death. The last time that Adam and Eve talked face-to-face with God, 
was when he called them out for their sin and cursed them. What used to be their daily routine, walking and talking with God in the cool of the day, that immediately stopped. They had lost that personal communion with him. They still talked with him in prayer, we can be sure, but the relationship was damaged. Spiritually, they were not united as they once were. And the third kind of death, the worst kind of death, eternal death. Before the fall into sin, the plan was to live forever in the Garden of Eden with God. But then, in an instant, the eternal destiny of man was changed. Instead of a future forever spent with God, our new normal, our corrupted natural state was that of hatred with God. Enmity and animosity towards him. We were born as sinners and we would die as sinners, having to reap the consequences of our sins forever in hell. Unless God would step in, this was our future. This was our destiny. This is the difficult, stark reality of that first garden. But what about the second? Although it was technically on Golgotha rather than Gethsemane, where our propitiation was accomplished. Remember, propitiation that actual payment for our sins that makes our declaration of innocent and righteous actually a truthful declaration. Even though that's true, the garden is still a good point of contact. It's a good point of comparison because it was in the garden where we read that our Savior was tempted, he was distressed, and he was longing not to have to drink the cup of wrath. In Gethsemane, our Savior confided in Peter, James, and John, and he said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Not a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Later he prayed a second time. and said, My Father, if this cannot cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. As he was praying, he was in agony, And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling on the ground. You see, the first Adam, he was invited to rebel against God. Eat of the one tree that was forbidden. Eat the fruit. The final Adam, he was invited to rebel against God and avoid the suffering and pain and misery and death. Don't drink the cup. The first Adam, he gave in and he damned all of mankind. The final Adam refused to give in and saved some of mankind. And to be sure, we are, to be sure, to say that we're thankful for the sacrifice and resulting salvation of Christ, that's an understatement. We are eternally in awe. We're eternally grateful. We'll eternally sing to the praise of our Savior who so selflessly suffered for sinners. All of that is absolutely true. But still the question remains, isn't the trespass greater than the grace. Didn't Adam do more harm than Christ did good? It feels almost blasphemous to ask such a question, but isn't that what scripture lays out? Damnation for all, salvation for some. The math is clear. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying here. There isn't only one way to measure greatness. It's not only about the numbers. We have to look a little deeper. There's a parallel between Adam and Christ. There's a contrast. Let's first look at that parallel. The physical death that came in Adam has been transformed. 
physical death instead of a punishment for sin. It's now become a portal to eternal life. That is why when a believer dies in the Lord, we say that he or she was promoted to glory. And the spiritual death that came in Adam has been undone. Though we do not walk and talk with God in the cool of the day, instead what we do is we have his Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts, constantly guiding us. And in that way, we're, we're closer to God than even Adam and Eve were. God is inside of us. And eternal death? Well, Jesus suffered the horrors of hell to forever close its gates. Eternal death is not an option for believers. We will never have to suffer a single second of hellish agony. So that's the parallel. Adam brought physical, spiritual, and eternal death. Jesus undid all of them. He transformed the physical death, he undid the spiritual death, and he took on that eternal death himself. But what Jesus Christ did was greater, Paul says. Much more is the phrase that he uses. And we see this in in several ways, three of which we'll examine this afternoon. Three ways that the gift is greater than the curse. So first of all, our redemption, our salvation, this gift is more certain. It's more certain. Eternal damnation was not God's ultimate purpose for humanity. Though he would be completely justified to send each and every one of us to hell, that's not his ultimate purpose. If it was, as soon as Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they would have spiritually died immediately. God would not have come to them in grace asking, where are you? They would have spiritually died immediately, hearing nothing from God ever again. They would have physically died immediately, their bodies withering and decaying, breathing their last breath. Their physical death would not be a portal to eternal life, but to eternal death in hell. But God intervened. You can say, if it's over and grace hasn't won the day, you can be certain it's not over. If it's over and grace hasn't won the day, then you can be certain that it's not over. Salvation and life and grace and love and joy is God's ultimate purpose for humanity, and he will accomplish that purpose. As certain as the condemnation was, even more certain, much more certain, is our salvation. And secondly, this gift is more powerful. The gift of salvation is more powerful. More powerful than Adam's sin? More powerful than than damning the whole human race to eternal destruction? Yes, absolutely. Because where there is sin, where there is damnation, where there seems to be absolutely no hope left... What comes after that? Two words, but God. The flood seemed to last forever, but God remembered Noah, Genesis 8. Abraham, through his fear and his foolish, sinful decisions, lost his wife to Abimelech, but God came to Abimelech in a dream and made him give back Sarah, Genesis 20. Laban hated Jacob and cheated him of his wages, but God did not permit Laban to harm him, Genesis 31. Joseph was thrown into a pit and sold into slavery by his brothers, but God meant it for good. Genesis 50. And these are just a few examples in Genesis where the phrase is literally used. So just confining it to Genesis, just confining it to where the Bible says those words in that order, we see that. But truly, every act of salvation throughout the Bible is a but God moment, whether those words are used or not. But can we say the same? For Satan. 
Can we say that every time that God shows grace, every time that God offers salvation, there's a but Satan and he undoes it? Well, certainly not. That phrase, but Satan, does not appear anywhere in the Bible, and it would make no sense theologically. Satan can't undo anything that God has done, at least not permanently. We see with Adam and Eve that it seems that Satan undid the blessings, but God would act. The power of salvation through Christ is eternal. We're eternally justified. We are eternally holy. We are eternally blessed. Whereas the curse of Adam was merely temporary. The curse only lasted until God acted. And finally, this gift is just more. This we'll examine in our final point this afternoon. Jesus Christ is the superior Adam, not just because justification is better than condemnation, not just because life is better than death, not just because blessing is better than a curse. Of course, we like these things better, but that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying it's so much more than that. It is more certain, it is more powerful, and it's just more. Because ask yourself this, what does death become? What happens after death? Nothing. Death is just death. It doesn't produce anything. It just is. The curse is the curse. Nothing more. But eternal life, this justification through Christ, this is just the beginning. And this we see a clue of in verse 17 of our reading, the abundance of grace. As a reference back to what we heard this morning about the result of faith, the, the blessings of peace with God, access to God, joy and hope in God, and love from God. It's a reference back, but it's also a reference forwards to the end of verse 17. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Our eternal life is not going to be spent back in the garden, restored to Eden. We hear that phrase, and we might long for it, Eden restored. How wonderful that would be, we think, to be among those trees of the garden, to walk with God in the cool of the day, to fall asleep in the soft grass, drink from sparkling clear rivers. It sounds like paradise. But despite what we may think, despite what we may have read in Christian books or even children's Bibles, in absolutely no English version of the Bible that I've ever found, Eden is ever called paradise. It's not. We think Eden is paradise, but it's simply not. Only three times is this word used in Scripture, and each and every time our eyes are pointed forwards to the eternal life to come, never backwards to the garden. Though the garden was sinless, though the garden was good, and mankind was very good, it wasn't paradise. It wasn't paradise. It wasn't perfect because it was precarious. It might fall at any second, which eventually, of course, it did. One might think that it would be wonderful to enter back into that sinless state of Adam and Eve, but what we receive is so much more than even that. Our eternal life, it's not spent in the garden of God where there's always that potential to fall back into sin. Rather, our eternal life will be spent in the city of God, surrounded by trees with leaves for the healing of the nations, 
with a sparkling river of life that flows directly from the throne of God. True paradise, where we will never sin, but instead where we will reign with him on his throne. In the true paradise, we'll be no longer gardeners, but rulers of the universe. That is our future. This future is vitally important to our faith. We must know it. Faith, as we read in the Catechism, is the knowledge of all of these things. It is. How can you have faith in someone? How can you believe in someone who you don't know anything about? We need to have knowledge. Faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed in his word. Our hands are open and God fills them with knowledge. That's part of faith. But the Catechism goes on. It says, at the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, that propitiation, everlasting righteousness, clothed in the righteous robe of Christ, where he can enter the throne room, and salvation, fully accomplished in heaven. Past, present, and future assurance. Assurance is the most important fruit of our faith as we live in this world. Now, although we we all love assurance, one of you might say to me, but isn't this assurance of our salvation a little presumptuous? Isn't the through line of being reformed that we can't do anything in ourselves and that God is totally sovereign? How can we be incapable and at the same time put all of our assurance in our own faith? Do we actually think that our faith is so strong as to save us? What about the days when my faith is weak and my sin is strong? Well, hypothetical person, that's a very important question to answer before we close. It's very important for us to get this straight this afternoon. It's a question that is answered by the Catechism, but not for another 16 Lord's Days. Well, I'm not going to wait that long. You know me, I'm not constrained by things like So let's turn forwards in the Catechism, 16 Lord's Days, to Lord's Day 23. Lord's Day 23, that's page 537. We see this exact concern addressed in question and answer 61. We see here, why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. So we can see, it's a picture, again, of those open hands. Do my open hands earn anything? No. Do my open hands receive anything? Yes. I can see already that that there's a word in this question that's so easy to misinterpret. It's the word by. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? This wording isn't as specific as we might have hoped. Now, to be fair, it's, it's a wording that's used in Scripture as well sometimes, but a more accurate translation would always have this word rendered as through in this context. The ESV is it's right on the money when it translates it this way in Ephesians 2, verse 8, the words that called us into worship this afternoon. For it is by grace, that's where the by goes, that you have been saved, through faith. 
This by, it, it refers to the source of our salvation, the reason behind it. So that can't be faith. Through, however, it's the method by which we receive that salvation. This is how the Catechism answers it. Not that I am accountable to God on the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive it, open hands, this righteousness, and make it my own by faith only. We receive the grace. There we can say, by faith. And we're saved through faith. And here is where the difference comes between assurance and presumption. Presumption says, I am saved for my faith is strong. I am saved by my faith. But assurance says, I am saved because Christ is strong. I believe this. I'm saved through faith. Let's now close with a beautiful poem about the real meaning of the empty hands. This is how the poem goes. It says, one by one he took them from me all the things I valued most, till I was empty-handed, every glittering toy was lost, and I walked earth's highways grieving in my rags and poverty, until I heard his voice inviting, lift those empty hands to me. Then I turned my hands toward heaven, and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches, till they could contain no more. And at last I comprehended with my mind, stupid and dull, that God will not pour his riches into hands already full. And so, fellow sinners, fellow men and women of faith, I invite you, God invites you, so much more than I do, to turn your hands upwards to heaven. Turn them upwards in humility. Turn them upwards in trust. Turn them upwards in assurance that your open hands will not remain empty hands for long. Amen.
let every creature rise and bring the highest honors to our king. As we heard this morning, it's all about God's glory. It's all about God's honor, everything that he does. So let us join the angels who proclaim his glory and sing of our faith in and love for our glorious God, remembering his great deeds. We'll do so with the words of him too.
you now have the opportunity to give of the gifts with which God has blessed you. A reminder that the offerings for today are for the work of CRWRF, the Canadian Reformed World Relief Fund. After the offering, we will sing Psalm 123, stanza 1, about resting secure in our Heavenly Father. May God bless your giving. In our prayer this afternoon, we will lift up particularly believers in Uganda, as after witnessing to Muslims at an interfaith debate where many gave their lives to Christ, two evangelists were beaten and stabbed. We'll pray for parents in Thailand after a madman killed 30 children at a daycare. And finally, we'll pray for the Reformed Conference happening in Nairobi over the next week or so, with a focus on preparing men for the ministry. Let's lift all this up to our God in prayer. O Lord our God, we lift our eyes and we wait, gazing into your face until you grant us grace. We thank you for the gift of faith, 
We thank you that we come from a long line of faithful men and women. Our ancestors by faith, though not always by blood. We thank you for what we have received in our confessions, the truths of your word explained for us. But we thank you so much more for your word, your holy word in its entirety, your holy word in our language, your holy word as you yourself have inspired it. We thank you for faithful men like Guido de Bray, Livianus and Ursinus, but we thank you so much more for faithful men like the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the gift of the open hands of faith, but so much more for the gift of grace to fill those open hands. And in faith, knowing who you are, knowing your power and your heart, we pray for this world. Lord, we lift up our brothers and sisters in Uganda, those who are persecuted for their faith, those who are threatened and attacked and killed. We lift up especially the two evangelists who were recently beaten and stabbed. We thank you that they are still alive. We thank you for the work that they were doing, that in spreading your gospel in a debate, many received the open hands of faith, even former witch doctors and former Muslims. Please protect these men who spread your word, but even more, continue to spread that word through these two men or countless others that all men may call upon your name and be saved. I pray also for parents in Thailand as a daycare was brutally attacked by a madman who killed over 30 people, most of them children. Lord, you do not understand what hatred, what insanity grips someone to slaughter some of the most vulnerable in society. We pray that you will comfort grieving parents in this unthinkably difficult time. Finally, O Lord, we pray a blessing on the International Conference of Reformed Christians. As a conference, will start this week in Nairobi to prepare men for the ministry. We thank you that your gospel goes out far and wide and that you welcome in every tribe and tongue and nation into your family. We thank you that you grafted the Gentiles into your covenant people of Israel. Give us eyes to see that we ourselves were among those grafted in, even if the grafting took place many years ago. None of us deserve your salvation. No Jew or Gentile through their birth, or even by faith, none of us deserve salvation. It is truly only by grace. We pray that you will bless your church all across this world, keeping it as a light, bright and clear in the darkness. All this we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In closing, let us stand to sing in praise of the object of our faith, our Lord Jesus Christ. Hymn 68, the stanzas 1 and 8.
Receive now the blessing of your triune God and go in his peace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.